Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Awakening Empty Nester podcast. We are so pleased you can join us in today's show. I am Michelle. And I am Mark, your host of this podcast, a show that was designed for you, the Awakening Empty Nester. In this series, we will be bringing you a whole range of inspiring insights, heart-filled stories, and conversations with truly amazing people. People just like you. People who have navigated through their own challenges, lessons, and opportunities. People who have transitioned to living a life of deeper experience, heart-filled contribution, and consistent awakening and growth. Find out how they are all living with what we call a strong ECG life pulse. Let's discover more as we dive into this episode. Whether you're an empty nester or not, we trust you will enjoy today's show. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Awakening Empty Nester podcast. We are so grateful for your time today and we are excited to have a conversation with our neighbour and friend, Miss Rose Siver. Since moving to the mountain 10 months ago, Rose has helped us settle in, welcomed us to the community, helped us set up our vegetable garden and has joined us in contribution at the local SES. More than that, Rose is an empty nester, grandmother, children's dinosaur book author and has a very much can-do attitude to life. She makes considered decisions and engages deep resourcefulness to journey through her life. Welcome Rose, welcome to our studio. You're the very first guest who's actually come in. Wow, this is very amazing. This is, I feel very special. <laughs> And you've come a long way, right, Rose? I have. I've come um, across the driveway and then I had to come up the stairs as well. So, so we're talking about serious you know, distances here. So. It's amazing to have you here, Rose. Thank you for joining us today. We want to introduce Rose to everybody because she's our neighbour, but more than that, she's an amazing lady. Thank you, guys, and thank you for being great neighbours. So I'm a, I'm a Kiwi, as you can probably tell by the accent. I'm a post-war baby. My parents were involved in World War II, so I'm a, I'm a late baby. Um, came into a world of where I guess most of the kids in my neighbourhood had parents that went to war or were involved with the war, and it was just normal. That's just what we did. My uncle built the house, my dad fixed the cars, and it was a can-do, very normal kind of life. And it's only now I realise how normal that was rather than the normal that we've got now because it was accepted that people just did what they needed to do to get on with it. And there was no expectation that you couldn't do anything. You didn't wait for somebody else to fix your problems. You fixed them. You didn't wait for somebody else to grow your veggies. You grew them. And so I was never told that I couldn't do anything. In fact, it was just assumed that I could. And I never realised how valuable that was until I got older and started to realise how many people don't have that belief system. That's a great way to be raised. Your parents, did they say to you, you can do whatever you want? No. I would just go to them with some crazy idea and they would go, oh, okay. 
you know. My, my dad was an engineer. Um, he was a mechanical engineer and he learnt um, because he joined the Air Force. So that's how he got his engineering training. Formal training was through the Air Force. And so he had a business and we had a, a garage. We had a, a pit and he used to weld things and fix things. And, and if my car needed anything, mm-hmm. he'd say, oh, there's nothing over the pit. Put your car over there. You can do it now. Oh. So you can change the oil. Right. You can do the whatever. It was just an assumption. you know. Right. The normal, like you said, yeah. More normal to become resourceful. Yes. Find yes, the very, solutions. Right? Very much. Yeah. 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 So you were telling us once before about one of those really fantastic life lessons. It's been your guiding light for most of your life in terms of, you know, some of the things that you've been taught. I sometimes wondered whether my dad actually thought I was a boy. I have a brother. Mm-hmm. But Again, there was no defined roles. The boys didn't only do this, girls didn't only do that. I only struck that when I would go out to the farm. My extended relatives had farms Mm -hmm. and the boys got to go out and shoot rabbits and do all sorts of really neat things and I had to stay home and help move the cows. But part of that was I was the youngest of the tribe. Mm -hmm. So... I was that annoying little girl that couldn't run fast enough or climb the trees fast enough or do whatever. So that was something that I didn't get a chance to do, but it wasn't because I was told I couldn't do it. Mm. I just physically wasn't big enough and fast Mm. enough to to do all those sorts of things. The life of freedom, hey. It's only as I got older and met those boys as adults Mm -hmm. that I realised I had actually missed out with something because they would just go off and then they would come back and I would be left, they used to tie the horse up to the front fence and put a chair next to the horse and I would spend my day happily climbing up onto the horse and off the horse (laughs) and round the horse and brushing the horse and you know, so I was happy in my own little world so So you have talked to us about becoming resourceful being able to do your own thing, you grew up with boys, you learned a lot of things, you learned how to climb onto horses using a chair, but there's also a little part of you that you shared with us a while back about being different, being a little different to the others. Tell us a bit more about that. Um, I guess what you're driving at there is I'm uninhibited. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not shackled to any one idea, any particular role, any particular I'm I've not been pushed into a box if that's what you mm, that's a good yeah, way of putting it. Exactly, yeah. So um and part of that is is I can give huge credit to my dad. My dad was a, a great thinker and he was a great problem solver. And one of the things was, um, a saying that used to go around our household was you've got two eyes and two ears and one mouth. It means you listen and look twice as much as you talk. Mm-hmm. So you learn and you learn to judge the information. And I don't mean that in a critical way, but you weigh up what you're seeing and what you're hearing from multiple sources. Mm-hmm. And that becomes part of your decision making. Mm-hmm. And the decisions you make affect what you do, what you can do, what you think you can do, mm-hmm. where you go. Um, you know, your whole lifestyle is, is affected by the way you think. 100%. And that led you to one of the stories that you shared with us once before about. When you're going through high school and you, you decided to take on a really cool, well, I believe, is a really great adventure and you, you learnt how to fly. Well, yeah. I mean, 
there was a chance there was a parent of a child at the school he was a flying instructor um he offered as a um an after school option um learn to fly and i thought well why not so went home told dad all excited and went yeah okay so there you go um so the catch was of course i had to fund that myself but um that then became just a matter of getting a job at the airport and i would work making milkshakes at the airport cafeteria all day and I'd get my 20 minutes of flying time. So as part of that, Mark, I actually won a scholarship. I didn't tell you this. I won a flying scholarship, which allowed me to fly with Air New Zealand down to Christchurch and get into their 737 simulator, which was just amazing. You, you're sitting, this is in the uh, pre-virtual reality, but this was actual virtual reality. You, you're sitting in the cockpit of a 737 coming into land, and it's all around you, and the feeling, the sensation, the way it moves, whatever. So I, when I got out, I said to the guy, so, so what happens when you um, make a mistake and it um, crashes? And he said, look up, see those hooters all around the room? Everybody in the building just knows you've crashed a 737. (laughs) No pressure. No pressure here. (laughs) Yeah. But again, it was, uh, you know, I saw an opportunity. Nobody said I couldn't take it. So I took it. So, yeah. Yeah, That's amazing. That's really cool. I'd love to have had that opportunity myself. So did you fly very much after that? Um, not very much. I left high school. Um, I got a serious job. I found boys, and you know where oh, that goes. Okay. You know. So. <laughs> Any stories to tell about that? <laughs> <laughs> not that I could repeat. <laughs> um, but I finished up. I have two children um, who are adult children now, whom I'm immensely proud of, um, and I raised them. My marriage broke up when they were quite young. And so I raised them, and again, it's an attitudinal thing. Some people say, oh, my God, that must be difficult, raising two kids from, you know, age four and eight. But it also gave me the opportunity to raise them the way I thought they should be raised. Mm -hmm. So it's a selfish thing in that um, I don't have to consult anybody else. It's all my decision, but it's also all my responsibility. So you just go with what you think that's raised, and they've turned out damn good, both of them. So I'm pretty pretty pleased with that. Awesome. You're an empty nester. I'm well and truly an empty nester, as you know, living next door. And I a am... grandma, too. I'm a grandma, grandma yes. of two. Um, so I'm yeah, a really lucky person, hey. I'm really unfortunate. Absolutely. So let's take a step back. So you went, got a real job, you said, and, and, and did it a career, and you got into... Communications. Yes, and that was a very male-dominated role. Right. But I was totally at home with that. Mm. I I loved maths and physics, Mm. so I was like a pig in mud. Um, The system had a bit of a problem because it was a government department and not geared up to female employees in that particular role. Um, So they had to adapt a bit to allow me to do shift work and allow me to do the sorts of things that you know, as part of my role and my promotions that, mm. that I got to do. So I was at the cutting edge of a lot of the high, higher tech technology that went into the South Island of New Zealand. Yeah, you were sharing with us, you did some experiences in some of the projects. You had to go down to some really rugged terrain too, is that right? Yeah, 
Yeah, um, one of the the most enjoyable projects was we were moving from open wire system where you've got telephones with wires that go from pole to pole to microwave systems. Uh, and it was particularly relevant to the South Island of New Zealand because it gets pretty darn cold and we would get a lot of ice on the um, on the wires and the wires would break. So in order to keep the communications going, there was a technological leap forward, but it meant putting in repeater equipment at the top of mountains and the bottom of the South Island, which was just awesome. It was a great, great project to be involved in. Wow, so you learned to mountain climb and did you do any No, 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 oh, no, no, no. <laughs> and, and they wouldn't let um, women climb masts. That was, that was definitely, oh, yeah. that was a boys thing. Mm-hmm. So I put the equipment in at the bottom of the repeater masks. So yeah. we would go up by four-wheel drive or if it was really bad, when it's, we had to get the army to help us get in. To, mm-hmm. So I sat in the warmth at the bottom of the tower oh fiddling with the knobs, getting the levels right, while the heroes got their safety gear on and went up the top. So Very cool. So you're in that role for a few years? Yes. Yeah, 12 years wow. doing that. So you transitioned from that role to education? Um, yeah, sort of. Um, I went from there, I went to um, data. So that was a natural transition to go from telecommunications to data to computer networks to working as network controller and then there was a job came up for the Commonwealth Games in Mm -hmm. Auckland 1990 Mm -hmm. they needed network and communications people and it was paid job oh Mm -hmm. I'm in for that Mm -hmm. so I did that for a year Uh, and then my husband I was married at the time I had one child my husband um, he had a what was what, what I called we would follow the crops, which meant that he would follow the promotions, right. which meant the longest we stayed in one place was two years and four months. Right. And at one point when we were following the crops, we decided that we would um, take a stand. And so we bought a business so we would have control over our destiny. Right. And so looking logically at businesses, what do you buy? Well, you don't import Balinese furniture, you don't, you know, coffee shops that works too hard, too long hours, education, there's a go. Um, so bought an existing education business and it wasn't long after that that the marriage broke down and I got really snotty and said, keep your super, keep your whatever, keep your shares, I'll take the business. So I finished up running the business and that allowed me to raise my two kids because I only worked school hours. Right. I could have school holidays off. You know, so so I had that luxury of uh, organising my workload. So. so, Rose, you've been through quite a few transitions. I mean, two and a half years in one place, the transition from your marriage. Oh, yeah, I'm really good at packing boxes. Yeah. I'm really good <laughs> at packing boxes. <laughs> so apart from being very good at packing boxes, what is one thing that you have learned from that? What strength do you need to have to be able to transition easily? Well, I think you need the the faith in yourself and the resilience. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to make mistakes and shit happens mm-hmm. and you've just got to regroup and move on. And the decisions you make, I think the one important thing is getting the knowledge. Decisions made with no knowledge mm-hmm. or with the wrong knowledge mm-hmm. 
can really lead you up the gum tree. So it's taking that time to make the real decisions that are right for you or right for me in that case. And that's knowing my strengths, knowing my weaknesses, knowing what I think I can do mm-hmm. is is important. I mean, you've seen the building next door. Mm-hmm. So yes. now my uncle was a builder. And because I wasn't raised as a girl or a boy, I was raised as a child whose uncle, who was a builder, lived with us. Everybody builds. Oh, that's the normal, isn't it? Why, why wouldn't you build? So, you know, why wouldn't you fix your car? That's what people do. So. And the key to all of that is resourcefulness. That's, that's what I loved about your story is that find the solution. Be resourceful and find the solution. Know where you want to go. Know the situation, what's going on and find the resourcefulness in yourself to move forward into that space. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you're waiting for somebody else to save you, you're going to be waiting a long time. And if you're making your decisions based on information that's not good, you can also, you know, do the wrong thing. You end up in the mess. So, so one of my, one of my things is back to the, you've got two ears and two eyes and what you have to do is weigh up that information and decide whether that works for you or not. Mm-hmm. Don't just accept the first thing that comes through. Yes. Mm. I think the important part is making a decision. Yes. You know, you can, yes, definitely step back, slow down, reflect, weigh up. Yeah. But don't just keep weighing up because yeah. you'll never get anywhere, right? And such a lot of that happens at a subconscious level. Mm. I, uh, when I took on the training business, it was an interesting learning curve in all sorts of ways because to go from telecommunications to training, oh, you've got to deal with people. Ha! Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> I mean, goodness gracious. So I, I'm a great believer in mind maps and I did a mind map of the organisation and about where our weak points and where our strong points and what needed to happen. Lots of colours, I believe in colours, so big, beautiful piece of A3 paper, lots of lines, lots of drawings, put it on the back of the toilet door or the back of the wardrobe door, I think it was, and just got on with it. And 12 months later, I came back to look at where are we now, what are we doing, and an awful lot of those things I had addressed. And I'd addressed it without even, you know, consciously going about it. It was a subconscious direction that this is the right direction this is what I should be doing you have to trust yourself so powerful what you just shared there because that is something that we do you know we do vision boards we do dream mandalas there's some magic in being able to put the mental what's in your head down on paper and having that visual and the you know the colors help bring an emotion for you as well all of that you can put it out there release it and 12 months later, like you say, come back to you and go, wow, it's done. Yes, yes it's amazing it's feeling. the magic yeah. in that, you know. Yeah, I know you, you two meditate, and I used to years ago, but now I walk early in the morning in the quiet, mm. and I think that's where I do my thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's still a form of meditation. It's just a walking meditation. Mm. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a peaceful mind place yeah. where you're not consciously thinking of anything you're unconsciously processing a whole lot of mm-hmm. stuff and you're in nature too so you're grounding yeah, and you're exactly. connecting with with the energy of nature around you the creek the trees the grass mm. all of those sorts of mm. things which i think if you're a city city dweller we don't get to do that too much you know that's why we love living up here in the mountains yeah absolutely yeah
Absolutely. We do live in a beautiful place and so much to appreciate. So how did you get up to the mountain? So you were living in New Zealand and... Uh, no, I'd, um, we'd bought the business in Australia. Okay. It was one of, the, yeah. one of the following the crops move. We'd ended up in Sydney. Yeah. Um, and that's where my marriage broke up. And so I, I think I've got a fair dislike of that city for all sorts of reasons, probably none of which are terribly practical because it's a beautiful place. Mm. But I wanted to get out. So I came to Brisbane. And I could do everything I needed to do in Brisbane. I had a big house. Uh, kids went to school, finished school. Um, it was five acres. They could have a horse. You know, it was great. Then they both left home and I had a five-bedroom house on 10 acres with a mortgage. And I thought, that's a bit stupid, isn't it? Why do I need this? Um, I'd done the taking in foreign exchange students um, to help pay the mortgage and I was over that as well. So... I started looking for something different, and that's how I found the mountain. Um, so I went to a 600-square-metre plot next door, mm-hmm. and I'm loving it. It's great. Let's just take a step back. You just brushed over something that I think is a, a nice little story. That was about the overseas students and having them stay with you, and it assisted you with your mortgage, but you were contributing. You were contributing in, in many ways in allowing people to come and stay with you so that they could attend university, is that right? Yeah, they were coming in um, to come to Total Immersion English classes. They would do um, IELTS tests at the end of it. So it was part of maybe their job or their university or whatever. They would come over. So it was just such an easy fit. Mm. So there I've got you know my mix of education background. I've got space. It's a great thing to do because a lot of people, you know, they may have a large house, they may have the opportunity to do something, but don't choose to do it um, for various reasons. And I think that's just a nice reference that you're able to yeah. support other people coming in from, from overseas and to, you know, give them a place to stay. Yes, it was helping you, but, you know, that's all part of contribution to yourself as well. So what happened after that? So you moved up to this beautiful space up here on the mountains? I did. When did you start to transition to this passion that you're currently... Ah, yes, dinosaurs. Well, um, one winter, cold winter day, there was a lecture at Queensland Museum on dinosaurs in Queensland. Mm. I mean, seriously, dinosaurs in Queensland, get a grip, that's... Whatever, got to go and find out about that. That's my goodness. So I took myself off, and and as a process of going to that lecture, I met a couple of people. One of which was David Elliott of the what is now the Australian Age of Dinosaurs, who had found dinosaur bones on his property in Winton, and he had really got involved in it. And they were looking for people to go out to Winton and stay in their shearing shed. And you'd have to cook for yourself and look after yourself. You needed a four-wheel drive to get there. But, you know, you could work on dinosaur bones. Mm-hmm. I mean, wow. Who'd pass up an opportunity like that? So I took myself off to Winton next school holidays and found David Elliott's place, which is about 120k out of Winton, which is two and a half hours from Longreach. So we're, we're talking long way out. Next stop is Birdsville, long way out. So for those who aren't familiar with the Australian outback and where we are, how far is that from here? So how long a drive from here in Queensland on 
Tambourine Mountain to get to that destination? I, I can't tell you in kilometres, no, no. but at a reasonable rate, it's three days to drive. If so you, that's a reasonable commitment. Right? It's, it's a reasonable commitment. So you don't go for a week, right? It's going to take you three days to get there and three days to get home. So you go for two weeks or right. two, three weeks. So yeah. for our international listeners, those in Europe who might drive for 10 minutes to go from one country to the next, <laughs> we're talking three days to go from from a suburb, beautiful suburb here on the mountains out to this location. Yeah, it's and, far. And you're still in Queensland. In, <laughs> You haven't left the state yet. You're still in the same state. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, moving on. Yeah, so um, David had a whole heap of bones that had been dug up mm. and they were encased in a rock material. So he'd got some donations and he'd bought a whole set of these little dentist drill thingies, mm. built a lean-to off the back of his implement shed and you know, on a dirt floor, and you would sit there all day. And they, he had a volunteer paleontologist who would hang around and tell you what's bone and what's not bone and what's ever. So you would sit there and quietly grind away the rock till you found dinosaur bone. Mm. And you either love it or you hate it. You either go, ah, two days of this, I'm gone, or they've got to drag you away to tell you it's lunchtime. You know, you just get. Absolutely amazed. And there's one story I'll tell you. I was working on one bone and there was a twig, a fossilised twig going through the dirt and it was at right angles to the bone. And I didn't know what it was. It could have been a tooth. It could have been, you know. So I call over them, people that know, and they go, no, no, it's just, just fossilised wood. No, get that off. So, so I'm working around this thinking... Okay, so 100 million years ago, this dinosaur died in a swamp and it got covered by mud and a tree fell down and a twig from the branch went through the mud and hit this bone. And then over the next 100 million years, that mud turned to stone and then somebody came and dug it up I'm the first person, actually, I'm the only person that's ever seen that. That's the ultimate cold case. Wow. It does my head in, mm. being able to touch those bones. And I'm not a paleontologist. I'm not, I'm not trained to do any of that, but I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to be able to do it. So that led to too much dinosaur dust up the nose <laughs> and <laughs> the calling back on the education training that I'd had. And part of what I've been doing was teaching people to read. Mm. And one of the big issues with reading, particularly with boys, is getting interesting material. Right. Uh, what boy doesn't like dinosaurs? Mm. So now we have a series of books on Australian dinosaurs um, that are written about dinosaurs that really exist and they're what I call faction. So it's fiction based on fact. So, yep, you can go and look them up. They were definitely there. You can even see pictures of the bones. But how they got there is my bit of the story. So Beautiful. So, yeah, you started to pull life experience and interests all into one element. So you have written a series of books now. Yes. So why don't you tell us a bit about that? Tell us about your books. So I've got, I started off with three picture books, which I donated to the Age of Dinosaurs, and then I started writing um, what I call young adult fiction. So I've got two of them out there 
that have been in print for a while. Dinosaurs and dragons. Did dragons exist? Um, dinosaurs fight to survive is when we found two dinosaurs in the same hole, which is a bit sus. Mm. Who ate who? Who was chasing who? Um, and Dino Thor, which is about digging up dinosaurs in Antarctica. Yeah, and I've, I've been to Antarctica as well because you've got to check that out. Absolutely. Um, and the one that's just coming off the press now, I've got the final artwork being done, is called Dine Opal, which is about opalized dinosaur bones. Wow. So I'm on a roll. You are indeed. I'm on a roll. If our listeners would like to get hold of your books. I've got a website. It's rosesiva.com is my website, R-O-S-E-S-I-V-A, or one word, dot com. Um, so they can send me a message through there and I'm happy to send anybody books or beat up your local library or your local bookshop or whatever. They're, they're um, all on Amazon as well. Nice. Right. We'll, we'll add that those details to the show notes below, listeners, so you just uh, scroll below and you can see that. And Oh, and the good thing about dinosaurs... Oh. You don't have to be in a hurry. They're not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and to our empty nesters listening, who are feeling like they are dinosaurs themselves, what, mm. what advice would you give them? Oh, wow. Um, I think nothing in your life is ever wasted. Nothing is ever good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And it's the quality of your thinking is what determines how you face what's going on in your life, mm. how you make the best of it, nice. um, and what you can choose to do. Because yeah. you choose. You choose based on the information you have. Mm. Or coming back to the decisions you make. Yep. Yes. And the resourcefulness mm. too. Yeah, mm. yeah. Beautiful. Love that. Absolutely love that. So, Rose, this has been a very interesting conversation, one of many we're sure to have. You inspired us and our listeners with you know, having those qualities of resourcefulness of having a solution mindset of weighing up you know what you have in front of you and not necessarily going down and and saying oh I can't do it weighing things up and making a decision as to how to act and whether or not the decision is right or wrong it doesn't matter as long as you've done something and moved forwards because in your failures too you're moving forwards you're learning something yeah absolutely Yeah. yeah so all that, your whole experience, your experience with transitioning, the, the ease with which you've done many of your transitions, I'm sure will help inspire many of our listeners who might be going through a bit of a tough spot, might be feeling a little bit like they're in a rut, they're doing the same old, same old, and they've been wanting to do something. Maybe it's not dinosaurs, maybe it is, and do something that's out of the ordinary. And having this conversation with you hopefully has inspired some or many to go and live their life with more passion, live their life with more experience, contribute more to themselves and to learn, keep learning. And to draw back and look back on your life and look at what have I done and how can I use that information, that experience, those lessons into my life moving forward so that those things aren't necessarily wasted. So what's next for you, Rose? Well, um, I'm really enjoying writing the books. I love that. Um, I've got another one burbling away in my brain. When we get out of lockdown and when I can travel, um, there's a couple of sites that I want to go and investigate because that's the way I get the feel for what what the country was like, who's doing what, what you know, what am I dealing with, and the language that people use, which is all part of the story. So overseas trips are going to be 
pretty much out, apart from maybe hoping to sneak to New Zealand to see my grandchildren. Um, but certainly a lot more travel to remote places in Australia to, to find stories. Cool. So contribution's another mm. thing that I know you're involved in. You've joined the SES to support the local community in, in emergency services here. So that's, that's amazing. Things, things we can do to help. And, you know, like the SES, yeah. okay, I'm not... I'm not going to get on roofs, I'm not going to carry bodies, I'm not going to do any of that, but I can do comms. Mm-hmm. You know, there are there are roles within any organisation that you can find that you can be useful for. Absolutely. That's a great thing to do. As you know, we've joined the SES ourselves and another one of our podcasts, we interviewed a good friend and a good one of the leaders at the local SES um, organisation and uh, it's a really, really cool thing to do. So if you're interested in and getting involved in your local community, then we could highly recommend investigating the SES or some other voluntary organisation that you might be able to to contribute with as well. And if I can just add to that, Mark, because a lot of that, you know, we think that we need to have certain skills to do certain things. But if you look back on what you have done in the past, nothing's ever wasted. 100%. That, That skills that you've learned, be it folding sheets, sticking up dinosaurs, whatever, it's never wasted. And it's a great experience, isn't it? You know, it adds to that tapestry of life. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And in doing so, in continuing those skills and honing in on those skills, you can also teach others in contributing. Well, it's been a wonderful conversation. Going to wrap up here, listeners. But if you have any questions for Rose, we will put her contact details in the show notes. Thank you, Rose. You're most welcome. This is the Awakening Empty Nester podcast. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoy what you heard today, share with a friend. And if you have not already done so, please subscribe, rate and review the show on your favourite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments or feedback for us, you can reach us directly at podcast at thedreamarchitects.com. Looking forward to you joining us on our next show. Thank you for listening.